This is Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Joining us is Michael Norton. He is co-author of the book, Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. He co-authored the book with Elizabeth Dunn. And Michael is the Harold M. Brearley Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. He's a member of Harvard's Behavioral Insights Group. And his TED Talk, How to Buy Happiness, has been viewed more than four and a half million times. Hey, Mike, we are so excited that you are here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you both. You start your TED Talk, Mike, by pointing out all the people who say money can't buy you happiness. And then you, you right from the, the get-go, you're like, they're wrong. <laughs> they're completely wrong. Explain <laughs> to us why they're wrong. Yeah, I think one of the things that Liz Dunn, my co-author, and I really thought from the very beginning is that basically it's not the money that makes you happy or not. So like you fill out your taxes at the end of every year and you have some numbers on that and that was your income. But two people who make the same amount of money, you know, their taxes look exactly the same, doesn't mean they have the same life at all. And it's obvious and yet we didn't really think of it that way. So it really is not how much you have, but what you're doing with the money that really matters so much. And it's not that money is the key to happiness, meaning the more you have, you know, your life is perfect. But it does mean that when we're spending money, we often spend it on things that aren't, they're not really ruining our lives, but they're not really making us much happier. And all we really try to do is say, hey, can we find other ways that people can spend their money that might actually give them a little more happiness? Is that because people buy things, right? What, you know, whenever you ask people, and I know you, you obviously as a researcher do this a lot, you say, you know, so you win the lottery. What do you do? You know, most people will tick off, well, first I get a really fancy car and then I'm going to buy my mom a house and buy myself a house and I'm going to buy this and this and this. Is, is that the, the, the gist of the problem? I think it's, it's part of it that when we get money, the first thing we think is a thing very often that I'd like to get something typically for myself. Even, for example, if you think about buying a new house, that's great. I mean, I like nice houses too. I think we all like nice houses. But when you do that, you often move. And maybe you were in a neighborhood that you loved and you knew your neighbors and you were really close to them, but now you're in a completely new community and you don't know anybody. So again, it's like buying the house isn't wrong. It's a nice house, but it's really what the money's doing to your life overall that's really going to determine how happy you really are. When you focus in on your TED Talk, and I, I had watched it before, I rewatched it before we, we sat down to do this interview, you basically divide happy people and unhappy people by their behavior, right? And you're saying those people who use money for pro-social rather than anti-social behaviors using money to either get together with others or to do something for others are happier. So first of all, what's the difference between pro-social and anti-social and, and why does this work? I do. I divide people. Even when I walk down the street, I just point at people and say, you're good, <laughs> you're bad. And I, do <laughs> I knew it. it. I do it in I my own it. household, too. I used I to do it, it just in my head, but now I actually point at people and yell at them. Judgy. So don't Very come judgy. to Cambridge. I like that. That's why Soledad <laughs> likes you, by the way. She's judgier than I am. <laughs> so true. So true. Um, I think that, so let's think about buying things again or buying stuff for yourself. So we do these experiments, for example, where we give people money and tell them to go buy a coffee. Some people, though, we say, go buy a coffee and drink it yourself. 
And other people, we say, go buy a coffee and give it to somebody else. Just as, as simple as that, you know, just $5, $4 coffee, whatever they cost now. Getting a free coffee for yourself is great. You know, I, I would like a free coffee right now. You, nobody would turn down a free coffee. But if you think about you have a free coffee at 9 o'clock in the morning, at 5 p.m. or 10 p.m., would you really still be happy because you had that coffee? No, you probably had nine other coffees <laughs> over the course of the day as well. The one coffee didn't do much. But when you buy a coffee and give it to somebody else, think how different an act that is. It could be a coworker, it could be a family member. Some people just turn around in line and give, it, give a coffee to the person behind them in line. What happens then, people say you're nice, they smile at you, they say thank you, you feel good about it. You often still get your own coffee anyway because you're gonna drink coffee. But the act of just, even the small amounts, just instead of doing business as usual, which is buying stuff, which isn't wrong, it's not bad, of course we all need to buy stuff for ourselves, but this little shift toward a little more spending on others, whether it's people we know or charities or strangers, those are the things that seem to last a little longer. They matter a little more, in part because we just don't do them that much. When I was in college, my college boyfriend's family won the lottery. And he was from a very poor family. His mom had to work three jobs to send him to Harvard. And they won the lottery. And it wasn't, you know, what, did someone just win a billion dollars? It wasn't that. (laughs) But it was $11 million. And it was so interesting for me. And we bought stuff. I mean, I didn't because I had no money. I was a college student. <laughs> but but I went along while stuff was being purchased on somebody else's money. And uh, cars, um, a very nice BMW, uh, jewelry, um, you know, paying off some from some debt, obviously. And it was interesting to me, though, to see how much the social fabric was was literally wrecked. Like his his grandpa, who used to play cards for pennies. You know, that's how... Mm-hmm. Those guys spent their entire afternoon like no one ever wanted to play for pennies with a guy who now had 11 million dollars. Right. So it just completely ruined his social life. Um, it, it ruined the family dynamic. Right. You had people. Do you give a chunk of money to someone who's struggling, mm-hmm. um, not financially struggling, but maybe struggling with some other issues that money would be more problematic than solution for? So it was just so interesting to watch that all play out. All things you talk about in your TED Talk, and you're you're nodding vigorously for those who can't see you. It's actually just my laptop is moving up and down. <laughs> I disagree very strongly with everything you said. No, it's such a great example because even some of the categories you said, you said they bought a car. They bought other stuff. You also said, though, that they paid down debt. So if you think about how they're using the money, they're using it in very different ways on different things. Paying down debt actually does improve your happiness. It's a great thing to kind of cancel your ledger and not have that worry. So some categories are fantastic if you use the lottery winnings for that. You really would be better off. Other categories, though, don't pay off that much, like cars and houses don't seem to really matter that much. But I think you hit at the the exact real problem, which is that Again, it isn't the money itself. It's what it does to your life. I interviewed a lottery winner years ago who I still think of who said after he won the lottery, he felt like a walking dollar sign. Mm -hmm. Everyone, first off, everyone he ever met, ever, (laughs) even for a minute, reached out on Facebook or called him up and said, hey, how you doing? And then he said, good. And then they said, give me some money. Basically, that was his life. And it was his kids. And it was his spouse and it was his extended family, just like with your experience with your boyfriend, right? So it changes the fabric. And the worst part of all is that in the United States, most often to redeem these lottery winnings, you have to go in the media and hold a big check that says $5 million, $11 million, whatever it is. 
And then everybody who ever knew you actually sees you. In some countries, it's anonymous. So you can win the lottery, keep it quiet, carry on with your life the way it was. Again, it's the same amount of money, but the public versus private, the social versus not, of course, has a huge impact on how much we end up happy. We are talking with Mike Norton. He is the co-author of Happy Money, the Science of Happier Spending. Mike, I want to go back to the experiences that that Soledad talked about before, because there is a lot of research out there that says if you want to be happier, spend your money on experiences rather than on things. Do experiences work because we tend to do them with other people, whether it's a vacation or whether it's, I don't know, a class, a class or, or, or whatever it happens to be? Is it because we don't tend to climb rocks by ourselves? It's part of it for sure. So I think, you know, if you buy something for yourself, sometimes you use that thing with other people. But, you know, if it's shoes or a new phone or whatever, it's really about you and you're going to use it all by yourself experiences are kind of like a commitment device to other people. We do for sure have experiences that aren't with other people, but more often than not, they get us out of the house. Whether it's a, you know, even just lunch with a friend is better than lunch by yourself, but also these other kinds of experiences that you mentioned as well. So the social part is very important for experiences. But the other part is actually that experiences over time kind of add up to tell us who we are. So Anat Keenan at Boston University has this fascinating research on, she calls it the experiential CV, experiential resume. And basically in our lives, we're collecting experiences that tell us who we are. This is why people do these crazy races where they get electric shocks and run through ice water and stuff like that, because we're trying to find things that tell us who we are. Then you can say, let me tell you about the first time I left the country. Let me tell you about the first day at college. Let me tell you about the first time I left my hometown. You very rarely say, let me tell you about the first TV I bought. It's just a well, you don't mind. <laughs> it's very weird. You mind if you grew up with my father? I was about to say, yeah, you clearly don't have the same friends we have. They literally will talk your ear off about the first TV they bought wow. and all the details. I'm so but sorry. But here's my question. I know. It's, it is a sad thing. Oh, come thing. on. It was a, it, for my father <laughs> buying that first TV. He worked in TV his whole life and, and studied it. And that was that was a highlight. So he taught people about TV which means for him it was a pro-social experience. Yeah. So there you go. But it sounds to me when you talk about what you get out of an experience, it's different than what you get out of giving away money. So how come that seems to resonate um, uh, as a value for people um, who who are using their money that way and, and seems to be better, I guess, than than buying a new sweater or something. And how much do you actually have to write the check for in order to get the benefit? Mm. Yeah, so I, in our research, one thing that we, it would be not very helpful or interesting research if we said giving away a billion dollars makes you extremely happy <laughs> because <laughs> leaves most of us out of the game. So one of the things we really tried to do from early on is use small amounts of money to see if small amounts could make a difference. $5, $20, you know, buying a coffee for someone else, that's a very small purchase. We wanted to see if that could even have an impact. Now, buying a coffee for somebody else, it might make you happy that day. That's what our research shows. It's not going to change your life. You're not going to be a perfect 10 happy because you bought one coffee. So small things can matter for our happiness for sure. They don't necessarily instantly change our lives. But the idea is that even the small amounts, if you do them more habitually, so if you shift more of your spending toward 
giving to others and more of your spending toward experiences when you're on the margin of what to do. Over time, those changes, even though each one is small, maybe can add up to more happiness. And Soledad, your point about the experiences versus giving, they do actually work in very different ways. And the research shows that. So giving seems to make us feel like a warm glow is, is the word we use. Literally, you kind of feel like I did a good thing today. It also just makes you feel like you did anything. So if you, if you think about our days at the end of the day, what did you do? I have no idea. I answered a thing and did a thing. Giving actually makes us feel like we had an impact. I did something for someone else and it counts. And that's a big reason why those make us happy. Experiences aren't like that, though. Experiences are very different. They sort of are interesting to us, to who we are. They connect us with others. So different kinds of spending can make us happier in very different ways, actually. And we've been trying to unpack all those different ways over time. What about using our money to buy back some time? Says a woman who just came back from vacation, I'd like well, to point yeah. out. And, and I used <laughs> I used some money to buy time off the grid, right? I mean, that that was as you are going to do when you leave this studio today, right? In approximately two and a half hours. So right back at you. Why didn't I get any time off? I thought we were, <laughs> if we're all doing it. You're working in the wrong place, Mike. <laughs> That'd be true. Um, my colleague at Harvard Business School, Ashley Willens, is, is the expert in using money to buy time. And one of the things that she really shows is that um, if you think about buying time, you know, we would all maybe like a staff of, of, you know, 20 people in our house who help us with everything we do. Again, of course, just like we can't give away a billion dollars, we can't all afford a staff, even, the, even if we might like one. But we can do small things with our money. So she, again, looks at things like um, even if you're income constrained, if you think about, you know, instead of buying a couple coffees, if you use that money instead to buy a babysitter for one hour, even just one hour, if you have ever had a, new, a newborn baby, you know that one hour can be, it can feel subjectively like 12 years when it's the hour that you need. And so buying time, it, it is good to use it to buy vacations and things like that. But it's also these small little things every day, again, that if you shift some money toward those instead of toward something else, you can see how even the tiniest effect, the tiniest change in time could completely change your day if it's that day when you really need that hour, even just to, to crash on the couch. It's one of the reasons I'm kind of in love with uh, Mackenzie Bezos, uh, although I've never met her. <laughs> I've only seen her on TV. So, uh, But I just love that she's got this giant pile of money and she's giving it away in really real amounts in areas where she can have impact. It just seems like such a great blueprint for how to do it. So I'm curious... Is there a, a number that makes it, you know, where you see a difference in how people feel? I'm so glad you asked that because it is actually when we look at the data. So if you think about if you download your credit card statement and start categorizing everything, and some of it at least is, you know, a gift for a friend or a donation to charity, we can actually do like an audit of your credit card statement. Not are, not are you being financially wise, but are you spending on things that make you happy? And it turns out that it's not the amount of money that you spend on other people. It's the percent of what you have. Oh. <laughs> so um, I bet for her, she does need to give away an enormous amount of money because otherwise it's, it's nothing to her. But for people, you know, with lower income, small amounts of money, that's a lot of money. And it does actually predict how happy you are. And we've looked with richer and poorer people. We've looked in countries with higher and lower GDP. And across all of these, it still seems to see the, the percent of what you have 
the act of giving is what produces the happiness. And we haven't really seen, I think, luckily, in a sense, that there's a threshold below which giving money doesn't seem to matter that much. Anecdotally, I have often, because I travel on the New York City subway system, I feel like I have my PhD in this. (laughs) Um, But anecdotally, when you see someone who's asking for money, the people who give a dollar or two are always poor people. And if you ask people in poverty, like, gosh, like, why are you clearly who doesn't have a lot of money giving away this big portion of kind of what you have? Um, they'll tell you, you know, I've been there. I totally I, I've, I've so been in this person's position. I understand what this dollar or two can do. Um, so it seems to prove your point about the percentage of does kind of add value. Is there a best way to give for people who might have a chunk of money? Do you set it aside? Do you think about it um, with a structure? You know, like, hey, we're going to we have two hundred thousand dollars and we're going to give it away in this way consistently in a program, if you will, uh, every month. Is there a way that's that's better or that you've seen is most effective? If you look at the, the charities that you give to, if you kind of audit those charities, are those the charities that you care absolutely the most about in the world? Some are and some are not because some are random. You know, a coworker was doing a race and came to your office and said, will you sign this thing for me? And there's no way to say no because it's your coworker. And then now you're giving to that charity. So you, and which is great, I mean, we should all give to charity. I don't mean it like that. But you didn't actually sit back and think, how much money am I going to give to charity this year? And what are the ones that I really care about? It turns out, for example, that charities that we have a deep personal connection with give us more meaning when we give to them. So if you have a family member who suffers from a disease, it is the case that if you can give to that charity, that's more meaningful for you. But And people sometimes shift to that and they sometimes don't. So really trying to think about what aligns with your values, and it could be a charity, but it could be a friend, it could be a family member, could be a faith organization, you know, whatever is important for you and your values, that's where we should be trying to divert this giving. Well, and that's where we should be trying to divert our spending too, right? I mean, I've gone through the exercise and had other people go through the exercise where you take that same credit card statement at the end of the month and you go through and you ask yourself, would I have made these purchases again or would I make these purchases again? And you see, you start to see what you do care about. You start to see what where your values actually line up. Mike is nodding again, which makes me feel really good. <laughs> I, I know you've got five principles of happy money, five, five takeaways that, that we, can, um, we can pass along to this audience. Can you take us through those? Sure. So we've, we've touched on two. One is this idea of um, using money for experiences instead of stuff and things. Uh, the second is the giving that we've discussed rather than spending on yourself, giving to others. And actually, sorry, we've touched on a third, which is buying time, using your money to buy time, that one-hour babysitter. Those three are, uh, people tend to understand and like those because they've done them before. The other two are a little bit, I think, subtler, One's easy to implement and one's hard. So the easy one uh, is, we called it make it a treat. And it's very simple, which is just if you really love something, just give it up for a little while. And then come back to it. What? Wait, what? And it will be amazing. (laughs) What? And a lot of the research that we do, one of the things most religions have is that you give up something for a period of time. The thing and the time vary, but there's a taking away and then coming back. 
you think about, you know, if you can't have bread for a day, bread is amazing after you couldn't have it, you know, even over the course of a day or a week or weeks like that. So you actually, what happens is when we like something a lot, we consume it all the time. It could be, you know, TV show, binge watching, or it could be food. And the more we consume something, it's not that we don't still like it. It just starts to wear off a little bit. You know, like if you're eating a chocolate cake, it's terrific. But the 17th bite, you know, it's still good. It's chocolate cake, but maybe it's enough already. But if you stop and then come back to the chocolate cake tomorrow, you get to start all over again and it's great. So there is this idea, you know, if you give up coffee for a week, you would have enjoyed all the coffees. But that first coffee back is like heaven because you haven't had coffee. And the net happiness can be higher when you give things up. I said that's easy to implement because all it means is not spending money for a while. It's incredibly hard to implement because it works the best if we give up the things we like the most. And that's a whole other problem that we have to struggle with in life in general. So that's four things on our list. What's number five? Number five is, is one that's difficult for a couple of reasons because the world is kind of conspiring against us to not let us do this. So we call this principle, pay now, consume later. And the world likes to encourage us to consume now and pay later, the exact opposite. So we now, you know, with a click of a button, we can watch any movie or any show that's ever existed, read any book that's ever existed. If we need something, we can get it usually the next day delivered to us. So we really have this. And I mean, those are amazing innovations. I don't mean to, you know, say downplay that they're amazing. But what they do is they get us into a consume now kind of mindset. And we just talked about how when you wait for things like the coffee for a week and you come back, not only does the coffee taste great, but there's this little emotion that's called anticipation. And anticipation is an amazing feeling. There's research that shows that when people go on a vacation, if you ask them like the week before every day, the week of the vacation every day, the week after, how happy are you? For many people, the happiest day is the day before they leave. Oh my God, my vacation is starting in two hours and I am extremely happy you right see, now. And you're imagining how great it will be. And, yes, and you I think am. about, I'll be like, we've done sort of, you know, people think of themselves on the beach and, you know, they look great. And also everyone around them looks great. <laughs> then you go to the beach <laughs> and I don't look great and not, you know, the other. so, you know, we have these, I can't wait for vacation. It's going to be perfect. And then, you know, vac vacations are great, actually, the data show. But that anticipation is so important and so valuable. Kids before their birthdays, you know, the, the, the joy and excitement of waiting to consume is just huge. And we tend to not build that in. And then the paying now versus paying later, credit cards, of course, encourage us to pay later for everything. We just kind of swipe it and the bill comes later. And that's debt. We talked earlier about how debt can really affect our happiness. When you consume something that you haven't quite paid for, it weighs on you a little bit. It kind of interferes with the enjoyment of it. And my favorite example of doing it the other way is prepaid cruises. When you pay upfront, sometimes like a year before, and then you go on the cruise. And what do people say after the cruise? They say it was amazing. Everything was free. Well, that's how I felt about my trip for my 50th birthday. Because I didn't want to get credit card bills. And so I just saved the money before we went, put it in an account. It was it was done. And yes, you're right. It, it did. It felt free. But my question about this whole idea of pay now, consume later, isn't that just another word for saving? I mean, and saving is hard for all of the different reasons that that you've mentioned. But is it just saving with a specific goal in mind? And, and shouldn't we by this logic, be trying to 
be anticipatory about things like retirement? I absolutely agree. I think the first thing is that a lot of the research we do, the starting point is that people are going to spend money full stop. And so given that they've decided to spend, how can we help them spend it in ways that are better? But you're absolutely right that there's a pre-step to that, which is you don't have to spend the money all the time. You could save the money. Getting out of debt's good for your happiness. One of the issues with saving is it tends to not be very um, rewarding in the moment. Though obviously the way vacations and you know buying a friend lunch are rewarding in the moment. So we actually have been trying to think about how we can make saving more emotionally evocative, more to give us more happiness. And one of the things we've done, to your point, is when you save into accounts that are, for example, for experiences, you tend to be a little bit better about saving into them and a little bit better about not withdrawing from them. So we do have this sense in ourselves that we, we can help ourselves to save if we're saving for something that's really important to us that we really care about. But when our savings go into an account that has a, a you know account number that's 27 digits and that's it, it's not surprising that people say, that's not that interesting. Maybe I won't, I won't save. Yeah, it doesn't give you the, the little fuzzy and the little buzz of joy that you get. They got, you got to attach it to some kind of little freebie. People will go crazy for some little gift that even if it's not valuable in any real way, that is an indication that they've done something. So I always think you have to attach it to that. You, you many years ago now, I mean, almost like 10 years ago, you talked about the IKEA effect. Um and I, I wasn't sure what specific part of like you're referring to because I go the for meatballs. the I was going to say like by eating a lot of delicious Swedish meatballs. What's the IKEA effect, and how does that play a role in happiness? I would love if the project was determining the right number of Swedish meatballs for happiness. That's sort of like now some that's curve. research that's Harvard level. Come on, guys, get on it. Uh, the aspect we were interested in was the aspect where you build stuff yourself. Uh, that that part of their business model is, as we all know, that you build the furniture yourself or the products yourself. And many people express great frustration at building things themselves because they can't do the thing and the thing breaks and they jam the other thing <laughs> into the thing. But actually, the our research and other research shows that there's something about making things yourself that really does imbue them with a different kind of value. It's why people have like a lumpy mug that they made in high school and they carried with them for the rest of their life or a terrible watercolor, you know, that they painted at some point or people so have judgy. tables. So judgy. Well, I'm referring to myself. <laughs> Just to be clear, I have no artistic talent or a bookshelf or a hat rack. You know, we, we make these things and we keep them because they're so important to us. It's not that they look great, but that they create a value for us because we did it. We made it. It's part of us, and that's great. And so even with IKEA furniture, it's true that you're frustrated when you make it, but compared to that same thing that somebody else put together, you still kind of like yours a little bit more. There's a little tag when we make things ourselves that we just have more meaning in them. And you can say it's a, like a mistake because the thing's crooked, or you can say it's kind of a gift because we get to enjoy the things we made. We're built so that when we pour ourselves into things, we get a benefit out of them later. And typically parents say, oh, that's what parenting is, by the way, <laughs> that you just all of your effort goes to your kids. And then your brain says, I must really love these people if I'm <laughs> doing all of this no for them. Sense. Right. <laughs> I think we have to decide how literally to take you with Ikea, because my husband and I have decided that we will never 
put together furniture again because we will get divorced. <laughs> like we will we will just it it is not good for our marriage, but we will do things like make a misshapen pizza <laughs> and I do have the cutting board that I made in fifth grade shop to this day. At the end of your TED talk, you mentioned Donors Choose, which I think is a great organization because you can give $5 and that actually does go a long way to helping uh, a teacher. Often five bucks does buy a book for a kid. It does actually help that teacher move the needle and invest in students. And I think that's a really, really great organization. So I was very happy that you gave a shout out to them in your TED talk to those three million people who watched your TED talk. Four and a half. Oh, is it up to four and a half now? Four and a half. Wow. Just as yeah. we've That's been cause... talking, another million people. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thank You're, you. You know what? Gene and I say, you are welcome for us pushing your TED Talk. <laughs> Thank you for your time and thank you for allowing us to to pepper you with all these questions. I really do think people, especially people who've made it in some way, right, are an executive, are financially comfortable. Um, I think, you know, they, they are, we are trying to solve those questions around what makes you happy? What makes a full life? Is it just you know, the dollars, uh, you know, if I just get another, if I save another $2 million, it's all going to be worth it. Or, you know, what is the, what are the pieces of a full and valuable and valued happy life? And I think this is, goes a long way to helping people solve that. So thank you. Thank you. Is your retirement withdrawal strategy built for a looming recession? Do you know which accounts to draw from first? What are the common pitfalls? How can you minimize your tax bite? Join Edelman Financial Engines on Tuesday, August 16th at 2 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern for a timely virtual event, Recession and Your Retirement Withdrawal Strategy. You can register for free at planefe.com. They'll look for financial pitfalls to avoid and how to help make sure your financial plan is built to last. Whether it's sequence of withdrawals, whether to start taking Social Security or stay diversified, they'll help you understand the specific steps that you can take to make sure your financial plan is working for you. Join Edelman Financial Engines for Recession and Your Retirement Withdrawal Strategy on Tuesday, August 16th at 2 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern. There's no cost to attend and no obligation. So register now at planefe.com. That's planefe.com.